The word of the Lord from John chapter 1, verses 43 to 51. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm told that in the Roman Empire... Officials would sometimes make visits on behalf of Caesar, and these official visits had a threefold purpose. The officials came to make an appearance, to hear the people, and to give gifts. And these visits were called epiphanies. I would imagine that it was a big deal, especially if you lived far away from Rome. I mean, after all, when Air Force One lands in D.C., Ho-hum. But when it lands in Boise, it leads the news. I wonder, who would go see these visiting officials? I'm pretty sure it would be the upstanding citizens. If you had nothing to hide and nothing to fear, you'd go, you'd see the statesman, maybe even make your thoughts known, and you'd be happy to receive some token from them for the visit. On the other hand, if you were a criminal with your face on a poster at the post office, you wouldn't be there. You'd be hiding far away in some dark cave. The last thing you would want is a visit from Roman officials. Epiphanies were not about breaking down doors and hauling away the bad guys. That would be a different sort of visit. Epiphanies were about visiting and speaking and giving gifts. The word epiphany, after all, means an appearance. It's from the Greek word that means to shine upon. When you have an idea that's brilliant, you've had an epiphany. And although an epiphany could mean the visit of a Roman official, it had a more standard meaning of the appearance of a deity or of a god visiting men. So... Let's say that God came to visit men in an epiphany like that. 
Let's say that God appeared in his glory to speak and to hear and to give gifts to his people. Who do you suppose would show up for his appearance? Well, righteous people. People with nothing to hide and nothing to fear. People without sin who trusted he has gifts to give. Who would not show up when God appeared? Unrighteous people. Sinners, lawbreakers, and the like. They'd be hiding in the darkness. The last thing they'd want is a face-to-face with holy God. Well, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it follows that God wouldn't have an audience if he appeared in glory. Everyone would scatter into hiding because of their sin. God would have gifts to give, but no one to give them to. And at this point, he would have a couple of choices. He could take his gifts and go home, or he could seek out those sinners the ones on the run, and start giving them gifts when he caught them. Now, how absurd a task is that? How much extra work would that take? What a pain to track down people who don't believe you've come to help and who still might reject your mercy when you find them. For instance, you've got a man in Genesis who is on the run, a man who has made a thorough mess of things. He is running for his life because his brother wants to kill him. First, he conned his brother into trading his birthright for a bowl of stew. Later, he deceived his father into blessing him with his brother's inheritance. No wonder his brother wants to kill him. The man's a deceiver. He's a cheat. In fact, his name has a variety of meanings, the bad one being... He cheats to get what isn't his. His name? It's Jacob. On the run from angry brother Esau, Jacob falls asleep. And it's then that he has an epiphany, for the Lord appears to him. Jacob dreams and sees a ladder stretching from earth to heaven, which means heaven and earth are joined together by this ladder, with angels ascending and descending on it. Ponder that. Imagine that heaven and earth are so close together as to be connected by a ladder. The Lord stands at the top, and he declares that Jacob will be the father of a great nation. He tells him that through his descendants, all nations will be blessed because the Messiah will be born among them. And later on, the Lord will appear again to Jacob and give him a new name, Israel. As the prophecy is fulfilled, Jacob will be remembered because his descendants will be known as Israelites, as God's chosen people. Why is a cheater the one who is chosen? It is certainly not because of his integrity and righteousness. Jacob's on the run for his deceitfulness. No, he's chosen because because God chooses him in his grace. Jacob is blessed with such gifts because the Lord appears and speaks and gives them. He speaks Jacob into an Israel. The deceiver is made a patriarch. He even redeems the name Jacob. 
When you and I hear the name, we don't think cheater, but blessed. In fact, it's a great name now. It's a strong name because the Lord has given it a new story. See, Jacob also means God will protect, and it is true. So Jacob is father of all Israel because God has visited him. He's not the father of a great nation because he takes what isn't his, but because God gives him far more than he could ever get and far, far more than he deserves. Now our gospel reading takes place centuries later and God is still visiting his people. He's doing it a bit differently now because he's kept his promise to Jacob. The Messiah is born. God in the flesh is visiting his people. He is making an appearance, an epiphany. He comes to speak and he comes to hear and he comes to give gifts. Gifts of healing and forgiveness and life. He's just getting started in John 1, but already some believe in him. Philip is one of the first, and he finds Nathanael and says, We have found him. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael is skeptical, but he agrees to go along when Philip says, Come and see. When Jesus sees Nathanael, he has that kind of odd remark. He says, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. It's a bit puzzling to our ears in English. But as one commentator remarked, Jesus is saying, Behold, an Israel who is no Jacob. That's what Jesus comes to do. Turn Jacobs into Israels, sinners into God's people, cheats into chosen ones. How is this to be done? Jesus tells Nathanael at the end of the brief conversation, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Angels of God ascending and descending? Well, that's the language of Jacob's dream when heaven and earth were joined by a ladder. But Jesus doesn't speak of a ladder. This time heaven and earth are joined together by the Son of Man. He stood at the top of the ladder to speak to Jacob. Now he stands on the earth to speak to Nathanael. He is in the flesh to bring heaven and earth together so that Jacob's might be Israel's, so that sinners might go to heaven. This is not their work. It's his work. He doesn't point them to a ladder to climb themselves. He'll climb it himself. And this ladder, it has one rung, and his hands will be nailed to it. But by that cross, he opens the way to heaven for all who repent and trust in him. Nathaniel is going to heaven, and he's going for the same reason that Jacob is. It's not that Nathaniel is so righteous that he's earned it. It's because Jesus has visited him, spoken to him, 
given him gifts of grace and salvation. The Lord still makes such appearances, such epiphanies today. That is what the divine service is about. This congregation here this morning is not the work of man. This is a holy assembly of people gathered by the Holy Spirit. You are gathered here for an epiphany because no less than the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, comes to visit you today. He does not veil himself visibly in human flesh, although he retains his human nature, body and all. Now he veils himself in his word and at the font and in the supper. In fact, we well say that it is at the altar where heaven and earth come together, joined not by a ladder, but by the Lord in his supper. For Jesus, who sits enthroned in heaven, is also present with his body and blood here. The Lord joins heaven and earth, giving you gifts so that you might be his people forever. These gifts are yours because Jesus visits you, gifts you, and saves you, and he keeps visiting. Every proclamation of the gospel and every administration of a sacrament is the Lord visiting to speak and to save. It's not just for Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights. It is given you throughout your weeks to speak his word to others, to tell about Jesus, to repeat Philip's words and say, Come and see. The Lord desires all to be saved, and so he desires to visit and give gifts to all. Remember our speculation at the start of the sermon about Roman officials visiting. Who would gather to meet them? Upstanding citizens, not criminals. Now imagine if those officials showed up to speak an official decree of Caesar and declare that all criminals were pardoned for all crimes. There would be those criminals who believed the proclamation and came out of the darkness, but there would be those who didn't believe it and lived in hiding and died in hiding, even though they had been pardoned. That's the world today, and that frames all the mission work of the church. The Lord declares that all are pardoned, that he has died for all. Because you've heard this and believe it, by faith you do the most audacious thing. It's at the start of the service, marked by pastor and people trading back and forth these words from 1 John chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then you have the blessed nerve to declare to the Lord how much you have failed and sinned against him. Do you know where that puts you? It puts you in the shoes of Nathanael in our text, to whom Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. By the work of the Holy Spirit, you don't deceive yourself anymore about your sinfulness. Rather, you openly confess it to be true. And, 
by the work of the Holy Spirit for the sake of Jesus, you trust that God is gracious and that you're forgiven for the rest of your sin and deceit. The Lord visits with gifts, and the first thing you do is tell him how much you don't deserve them. But rather than pack them back into a suitcase, he gives them to you. He forgives you and strengthens your faith because the gift he most comes to give is the forgiveness purchased with his own blood. Don't discount that faith in God's grace for Jesus' sake. Because what's left if you don't believe that? God is gracious and just. So if you don't believe in his grace, all that's left to believe in is his justice. Everyone knows that they're sinful, at least deep down inside. If you only believe that God is just but not gracious, then you'll naturally see God as an angry judge who is going to get you. You'll think that Christians are angry hypocrites who like to judge others, too. You'll probably resent God and act rebelliously against him and his laws. That I think explains how an awful lot of the world population sees the church today. So what do we do? We proclaim the pardon. We proclaim that Jesus died to win the pardon and now visits to hand it out. We preach the law, but only so that people might hear of the gospel that their sins are forgiven in Christ. We're not here to tell the world to proceed to its execution. We're here to stand in the place of Christ, inviting the world to skip its own funeral and proceed to an eternal wedding. We're not here to say, go away. We're here to say, come and see. We're here to say to sinners who are cheating themselves that the Lord has died, that they might be his chosen people forever. That's what the Lord says to you. He drew near, drew heaven close to earth by his incarnation, tearing the heavens open for you at his baptism and making the way into heaven by the ladder of his cross. He still draws near to you this day in his means of grace, pledging that he will be with you here on earth until he delivers you to be with him in heaven in glory forever. Every Sunday, then, is an epiphany. For the Lord draws near to speak his word and to give his gifts to you. What joy! In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.